This is a Federal News Network podcast. The General Services Administration is doing much of the work for the Biden administration's goal to eliminate greenhouse gas by federal operations. GSA's Public Building Service is furthering energy policy through its procurement and design standards. It's also spending billions to modernize land ports of entry with sustainability in mind. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with Public Buildings Service Commissioner Nina Albert. GSA in this particular space plays in kind of two levels. The first is that we have our own portfolio, which is the buildings portfolio. And because we are both the largest landlord in the country, as well as the largest tenant in the country, we can influence energy policy, greenhouse gas policy, all related to building systems through our procurement and through our design standards. So we have been looking throughout our own design guidelines, as well as our green leasing guide and inserting into what are in fact demand drivers in the real estate industry, a variety of standards that will get us to net zero emissions. And we're actually targeting net zero emissions by 2045. GSA also serves another role, which is as the acquisitions provider for energy for all of federal agencies. And the DOD also has their own separate authority. But as a result of that, again, it's a procurement function. We can work very closely with clean energy utilities, lock in advantageous pricing, for example, which reduces you know, volatility, pricing volatility for ourselves, and then also work directly with those energy utilities to push toward our 100% carbon pollution-free energy goal um, as soon as possible. So we operate on both of those spectrums and are pretty challenged as well as excited to try and achieve those goals. Given the nature of federal buildings, some of them have been around for quite some time, were built in a different era of standards for really just about everything. How is GSA retrofitting some of these existing federal buildings to be more energy efficient? So one of the principles of energy efficiency is to take care of what we call the envelope, the roof, the windows, the walls, and insulation first. So just from a physical improvement perspective, think of, um, you know, working on your building from the outside in. So like those exterior envelope systems, and then you retrofit. And so from, you know, your listener's perspective, that's not so difficult to absorb and understand. And even though we have historic buildings, Uh, Clearly, you can replace roofs in a way that respects the historic nature of the building, but also achieves energy efficiency. The more complicated part is when you get to building systems like heating, ventilation, air conditioning, and other kinds of power systems that draw a lot of power. So those systems, we evaluate the building. It's, you know, loads inside the building. And the biggest challenge to it is really trying to figure out how to replace them without interrupting, you know, any of the building operations inside. So uh, it's usually a little bit of a timing issue. And then, of course, it's a budget issue. So we use a combination of appropriated funds as well as utility energy rebates and performance contracting in order to help support those kinds of energy efficient investments. And GSA is among the leading civilian federal agencies in terms of utilizing performance contracts. And we have made more than $755 million of investment since 
2013. So we keep working at it. One key point that I think people should be aware of, what's important is both implementing the building systems, but then the maintenance of those building systems is incredibly important. That's how you maintain energy efficiency over time. And so I like to underscore that it's not just that upfront capital piece, but it's also access to funding and dedicated funding that allows us to maintain these buildings properly. Let's talk maybe about some new construction. I imagine far fewer challenges when we talk about starting from the ground up, starting from scratch. I imagine there are certain standards GSA builds too. Let's hear more about that. Well, I wouldn't make a judgment about um, you know retrofitting old versus new construction. The only thing that I think is important for people to understand is that the most sustainable choice is to reuse a building when possible, because there's already so much invested and so much material um, already put into that site. And so just as a general comment, for the most part, it is a more sustainable choice to retrofit buildings um, when you can, when it makes sense to. But when we're building new, we have basically increased or moved the standard from where we had before. And we are now for new construction, as well as major renovation, going to be building to what we call net zero ready. Means that everything about the building, when carbon pollution free energy sources, renewable energy sources can be fully integrated into the building, that the building will be prepared to absorb and run off of that renewable energy source. So that is a pretty high bar to be net zero ready. And that is the standard to which we are holding ourselves for new construction. Pretty exciting standard. And again, GSA has been a leader in green building and high-performance buildings for over two decades. And we believe that setting a higher bar at this time indicates to the marketplace that this is where we want to see new technologies offered, new processes thought through. And I think it's an exciting time for the industry. Let's discuss a little bit more about that $3.4 billion for the land ports of entry. What are some of the sustainability features that are part of these projects? Yeah, I want to um, kind of preface my answers with the fact that the land ports of entry are in, they're spread out all along the northern border as well as on the southern border. So you can imagine that the weather and the climate in Seattle versus in North Dakota or Maine compared to Texas, Arizona, and California. I mean, these are very, very different climates. And so the solutions for any of those projects is going to be very unique. And so we, the standards that we are applying for any of those projects is to get to net zero ready, as I had mentioned before. So that will be guidance. But in terms of the specific way to achieve renewable energy, for example, or how to mitigate environmental impacts, how you treat the site, or what risk that changes in climate present to that particular facility. All of that will be modeled as we design those facilities and then constructed to achieve the lowest impact on the environment. Nina Albert, Commissioner for GSA's Public Building Service, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on 
bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do 
set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, 
always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast1 to learn more and start your free trial.